Welcome to the End of Innocence. I'm your host, John Young. This November 22, 2023 marks the 60th year since President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. Over the next few weeks, I will be publishing a series of podcasts exploring the ways in which the assassination's effects are still being felt throughout government and society today. But today we're going to look at things that President Kennedy did in the final few months of his life that may have played part in getting him killed. Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. The American public has never been satisfied with the conclusion of the first official investigation, the Warren Commission, that an obscure loner named Lee Harvey Oswald managed to commit the murder alone for indiscernible motives. The more so since Oswald was soon murdered in police custody before he could defend himself. The second official investigation by the House Select Committee on Assassinations in 1976 through 1979 found that a conspiracy was probably to blame but the identity and motives of the conspirators remained argumentative. A direct line can be drawn from the Warren Commission's attempt to put illogical conclusions over on the American people, constantly bolstered by cooperative media and historians, to the mistrust behind today's explosion of conspiracy theories. Yet re-examining the Kennedy case may seem to risk fanning those flames. Some may also wonder why a long-ago event merits our attention compared to today's pressing issues. If the past is truly prologue, then news about this milestone event is as relevant as what happened yesterday. Given the inexhaustible supply of crisis facing America and the world today, it is easy to believe that escalating political violence and ultimately complete societal breakdown are on the horizon. In fact, to younger generations in particular, it might seem that the situation has never been more precarious. However, tens of millions of Americans have already gone through a comparable era of converging threats. In the four decades following World War II, it was the shadow of nuclear annihilation that fed people's fears the way global warming does today. 
and none of the recent domestic conflicts have eclipsed America's no-holds-barred battle over its legacy over slavery and the persistent brutality of systematic racism. Indeed, during the Civil Rights era, political violence was an almost daily occurrence, from high-level assassinations to bombings and the murders of those who tried to fight for equality. In that perilous and often bleak time, Americans elected a young man representing hope and a vision for our country, in which everybody had the opportunity to prosper. Unfortunately, John F. Kennedy's life was cut short before his plans could come to fruition, and the country was forever changed as a result. However, the mythos of JFK persist, not only because of legitimate and fact-based questions surrounding his murder, but also because of what Americans believe could have been. JFK's death, along with those of Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and Malcolm X in the same decade, profoundly altered the course of American history. Moreover, a peaceful transfer of power to the public's chosen leaders is the foundation of any democracy. When the mere possibility exists that this did not occur, it is urgent we come to terms with the facts of the case. Up to the moment Kennedy was killed, his presidency was on a uniquely transformative course. This fact has been obscured by highly selective and biased presentations of Kennedy's thinking and actions by narrators, including some leading establishment historians, who seem to owe their comfortable and influential positions to towing the establishment line. Kennedy, mindful of Southern domination in Congress and the Electoral College, moved cautiously but steadily on civil rights for African Americans. Just weeks before the 1960 election, Martin Luther King Jr. had been arrested and jailed in Georgia. Candidate Kennedy telephoned him to voice support, and his brother Robert Kennedy contacted the judge to secure King's release. The Kennedy administration sent federal marshals to protect Freedom Riders protesting segregation on interstate buses in the South, and in 1962, President Kennedy ordered federal troops to the University of Mississippi to enforce the right of a black man, James Meredith, to matriculate in the face of deadly rights. He nationalized the Alabama National Guard to furthermore enforce African-American access to the University of Alabama in June 1963, also making a sharply worded speech on live TV to define the civil rights crisis as a moral issue. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This afternoon, following a series of threats and defiant statements, the presence of Alabama National Guardsmen was required on the University of Alabama to carry out the final and unequivocal order of the United States District Court of the Northern District of Alabama. That order called for the admission of two clearly qualified young Alabama residents who happened to have been born Negro. That they were admitted peacefully on the campus is due in good measure to the conduct of the students at the University of Alabama who met uh, their responsibilities in a uh, constructive way. I hope that every American, regardless of where he lives, will stop and examine his conscience about this and other related incidents. This nation was founded by men of many nations and backgrounds. It was founded on the principle that all men are created equal and that the rights of every man are diminished when the rights of one man are threatened. Today we are committed to a worldwide struggle to promote and protect the rights of all who wish to be free. And when Americans are sent to Vietnam or West Berlin, we do not ask for whites only. It ought to be possible, therefore, for American students of any color to attend any public institution they select without having to be backed up by troops. It ought to be possible, in short, for every American to enjoy the privileges of being American without regard to his race or his color. In short, every American ought to have the right to be treated as he would wish to be treated. But this is not the case. We are confronted primarily with a moral issue, 
It is as old as the scriptures and is as clear as the American Constitution. The heart of the question is whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities, whether we are going to treat our fellow Americans as we want to be treated. If an American, because his skin is dark, cannot eat lunch in a restaurant open to the public, if he cannot send his children to the best public school available, if he cannot vote for the public officials who represent him, if, in short, he cannot enjoy the full and free life which all of us want, then who among us would be content to have the color of his skin changed and stand in his place? Who among us would then be content with the counsels of patience and delay? One hundred years of delay have passed since President Lincoln freed the slaves, yet their heirs, their grandsons, are not fully free. They are not yet freed from the bonds of injustice. They are not yet, not yet freed from social and economic oppression. And this nation, for all its hopes and all its boasts, will not be fully free until all its citizens are free. We preach freedom around the world, and we mean it. And we cherish our freedom here at home. But are we to say to the world, and much more importantly, to each other, that this is a land of the free, except for the Negroes, that we have no second-class citizens, except Negroes, that we have no class or caste system, no ghettos, no master race, except with respect to Negroes. Now the time has come for this nation to fulfill its promise. The events in Birmingham and elsewhere have so increased the cries for equality that no city or state or legislative body can prudently choose to ignore them. The fires of frustration and discord are burning in every city, north and south, where legal remedies are not at hand. Redress is sought in the streets, in demonstrations, parades, and protests, which create tensions and threaten violence and threaten lives. The old code of equity law under which we live commands for every wrong a remedy. But in too many communities, in too many parts of the country. Wrongs are inflicted on Negro citizens, and there are no remedies at law. Unless the Congress acts, their only remedy is the street. I am therefore asking the Congress to enact legislation, giving all Americans the right to be served in facilities which are open to the public, hotels, restaurants, theaters, retail stores, and similar establishments. This seems to me to be an elementary right. Its denial is an arbitrary indignity that no American in 1963 should have to endure, but many do. My fellow Americans, this is a problem which faces us all, in every city of the North as well as the South. Today, there are Negroes unemployed two or three times as many compared to whites. Inadequate education, moving into the large cities, unable to find work, Young people, particularly out of work, without hope, denied uh, equal rights, denied the opportunity to eat at a restaurant or a lunch counter or go to a movie theater, denied the right to a decent education, denied almost today the right to attend a state university, even though qualified. It seems to me that these are matters which concern us all. 
not merely presidents or congressmen or governors, but every citizen of the United States. This is one country. It has become one country because all of us and all the people who came here had an equal chance to develop their talents. We cannot say to 10% of the population that you can't have that right. Your children can't have the chance to develop whatever talents they have. That the only way that they are going to get their rights is to go in the street and demonstrate. I think we owe them and we owe ourselves a better country than that. Therefore, I'm asking for your help in making it easier for us to move ahead and provide the kind of equality of treatment which we would want ourselves. To give a chance for every child to be educated to the limit of his talent. As I've said before, not every child has an equal talent or an equal ability or equal motivation. But they should have the equal right to develop their talent and their ability and their motivation to make something of themselves. We have a right to expect that the Negro community will be responsible, will uphold the law, but they have a right to expect that the law will be fair, that the Constitution will be colorblind, as Justice Harlan said at the turn of the century. This is what we're talking about, and this is a matter which concerns this country and what it stands for. And in meeting it, I ask the support of all of our citizens. Thank you very much. Within hours of this speech, a white segregationist shot and killed NAACP activist Medgar Evers outside his home in Mississippi. Some prominent military figures, part of the military-industrial complex that the preceding president Dwight D. Eisenhower warned about in his farewell address, were out-and-out racists who were enraged by Kennedy's policies. One, General Edwin Walker, commander of an infantry division stationed in West Germany, had been forced out by Kennedy over his politicalization of his troops and had returned to Dallas, of all places, where he began both a run for governor of Texas and a national campaign against almost everything John Kennedy stood for. General Walker, together with FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover and many others, believed the civil rights movement to be riddled with communists and registered growing alarm at where Kennedy was taking the country. While Kennedy's economic policies featured a substantial cut in taxes across all brackets, he also pushed policies explicitly aimed at benefiting ordinary folks, an increase in minimum wage, expansion of unemployment relief, and a rise in Social Security benefits. In what would be his final year in office, after the near disaster of the Cuban Missile Crisis, he angered top generals by moving to dampen Cold War tensions with a ringing speech in favor of peace and a landmark treaty with the Soviet Union to forego above-ground testing of nuclear weapons. It is with great pride that I participate in this ceremony of the American University. I have therefore chosen this time and place to discuss a topic on which ignorance too often abounds and the truth too rarely perceived, and that is the most important topic on earth, peace. What kind of a peace do I mean, and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana, enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Not the peace of the grave, or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow, and to hope and build a better life for their children. Not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. I speak of peace because of the new face of war. Total war makes no sense in an age where great powers can maintain large and relatively invulnerable nuclear forces and refuse to surrender without resort to those forces. 
It makes no sense in an age where a single nuclear weapon contains almost 10 times the explosive force delivered by all the Allied Air Forces in the Second World War. Some say that it is useless to speak of peace or world law or world disarmament and that it will be useless until the leaders of the Soviet Union adopt a more enlightened attitude. I hope they do. I believe we can help them do it. But I also believe that we must re-examine our own attitudes as individuals and as a nation. For our attitude is as essential as theirs. And every graduate of this school, every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace should begin by looking inward, by examining his own attitude towards the possibilities of peace, towards the Soviet Union, towards the course of the Cold War, and towards freedom and peace here at home. First, examine our attitude towards peace itself. Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. It leads to the conclusion that war is inevitable, that mankind is doomed, that we are gripped by forces we cannot control. We need not accept that view. Our problems are man-made. Therefore, they can be solved by man. And man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable. And we believe they can do it again. Our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures, and we are all mortal. I'm taking this opportunity, therefore, to announce two important decisions in this regard. First, Chairman Khrushchev, Prime Minister McMillan, and I have agreed that high-level discussions will shortly begin in Moscow, looking towards early agreement on a comprehensive test ban treaty. Our hope must be tempered. Our hopes must be tempered with the caution of history, but with our hopes go the hopes of all mankind. Second, to make clear our good faith and solemn convictions on this matter, I now declare that the United States does not propose to conduct nuclear tests in the atmosphere so long as other states do not do so. We will not be the first to resume. Such a declaration is no substitute for a formal binding treaty, but I hope it will help us achieve one. Nor would such a treaty be a substitute for disarmament, but I hope it will help us achieve it. Finally, my fellow Americans, let us examine our attitude towards peace and freedom here at home. The quality and spirit of our own society must justify and support our efforts abroad. We must show it in the dedication of our own lives. As many of you who are graduating today 
will have an opportunity to do by serving without pay in the Peace Corps abroad or in the proposed National Service Corps here at home. But wherever we are, we must all in our daily lives live up to the age-old faith that peace and freedom walk together. In too many of our cities today, the peace is not secure because freedom is incomplete. It is the responsibility of the executive branch at all levels of government, local, state, and national, to provide and protect that freedom for all of our citizens by all means within our authority. It is the responsibility of the legislative branch at all levels, wherever the authority is not now adequate, to make it adequate. And it is the responsibility of all citizens in all sections of this country to respect the rights of others and respect the law of the land. All this is not unrelated to world peace. When a man's way please the Lord, the scriptures tell us, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. And is not peace in the last analysis basically a matter of human rights, the right to live out our lives without fear of devastation, the right to breathe air as nature provided it, the right of future generations to a healthy existence. While we proceed to safeguard our national interests, let us also safeguard human interests. And the elimination of war and arms is clearly in the interests of both. No treaty, however much it may be to the advantage of all, however tightly it may be worded, can provide absolute security against the risks of deception and evasion. But it can, if it is sufficiently effective in its enforcement, and it is sufficiently in the interest of its signers, offer far more security and far fewer risks than an unabated, uncontrolled, unpredictable arms race. The United States, as the world knows, will never start a war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. We shall be prepared if others wish it. We shall be alert to try to stop it. But we shall also do our part to build a world of peace where the weak are safe and the strong are just. We are not helpless before that task or hopeless of its success. Confident and unafraid, we must labor on, not towards a strategy of annihilation, but towards a strategy of peace.
Then, of course, there was Vietnam. Debates have raged about whether Kennedy would have lost a full-scale American war in Vietnam, as his successor Lyndon Johnson did, but it's indisputable that he was extremely cautious about major military engagement there. Quote, in the final analysis, it is their war. They are the ones who have to win it or lose it, end quote, Kennedy said. And evidence has emerged that Kennedy was, in fact, intending to withdraw U.S. troops after the upcoming 1964 election. Is it conceivable that he would have committed half a million troops there as Lyndon Johnson did? Surely his death made a difference. Mr. President, the only hot war we've got running at the moment is, of course, the one in Vietnam. Uh, and we've got our difficulties there, quite obviously. Uh, the headline and the story in the New York Times yesterday morning was rather an interesting one. It said that the administration will try diplomacy in Vietnam, which I'd assume we've been trying all along. Uh, what can we do in this situation which uh, seems to parallel other uh, famous debacles of uh, dealing with unpopular governments in the past? Well, in the first place, we ought to realize that Vietnam has been at war for 25 years. I remember a good many uh, people who said uh, two years ago that it wouldn't last six months. A good many uh, newspapers said that. Uh, a good many local correspondents said it. Well, it's still, the war is still going. In many ways, it's going better. That doesn't mean, however, that the events of the last two months aren't very ominous. I don't think that uh, unless a greater effort is made by the government to win popular support, they, that the war can be won out there. In the final analysis, it's their war. They're the ones who have to win it or lose it. We can help them. We can give them equipment. We can send our men out there as advisors. But they have to win it, the people of Vietnam, against the communists. Of course, Kennedy, the man and politician, was far from perfect. The vast store of memos and remembrances of those who worked closely with him show that he was a complex figure with many faults. A pleasure-seeking heir to a family fortune, but also a highly talented leader with a long-standing personal interest in the underdog. As his own words attest, the reformist side of Kennedy's consciousness only grew with time with the president increasingly aspiring to society-altering actions just as he was cut down by gunfire. If Kennedy was killed for reasons such as these, and not for some never-explained motive at the hand of a troubled individual, then we Americans have to reckon with the anti-democratic elements within the establishment to block any positive change, and equally with the determination of powerful institutions to undermine serious inquiry into what actually happened. I'm doing this series of podcasts because I believe that what happened on November 22, 1963 was prologue to what is happening now. We must understand those often covert forces that continue to shape our world. In next week's episode of The End of Innocence, we expose evidence that one week after the assassination, two of the country's most powerful men knew that President Kennedy was not shot by a lone gunman. We'll see you next week. <laughs>